All right, Joshua. It's our new study. We're going to go through the book of Joshua. Uh, but tonight, we're not going to go to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua before the book of Joshua. Because there's a lot about Joshua that's in Scripture before the book of Joshua. And so we're going to look at pre-book of Joshua, Joshua, and look at what's, what, what set the stage for what we'll read in the coming weeks in the book of Joshua. So, uh, but to start, though we're not looking at the book of Joshua, we're going to start in the book of Joshua. <laughs> okay, clear as mud? Oh, yeah. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. The people are um, getting ready to cross into the promised land. Moses is dead. He was uh, he died and was and and and, and was uh, uh, overlooking the city up on a place called Mount Nebo. Uh, when I was in Israel, uh, we got to go to Mount Nebo and stand <laughs> supposedly where Moses was, looking out over the the promised land. You see Jericho down there in Jerusalem, all this stuff, just beautiful. There's a monastery there, of course, you know, uh, in honor of Moses and. Uh, so he was there up on this mountain, never got to enter the promised land. He's dead. God is now talking to Joshua about leading the people into the promised land. Verses 5 and 6 of Joshua 1. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. So this is God telling Joshua, look, this is a new chapter now. There was a promise of God back in uh, Genesis to Abraham that he would give his people their own land. A beautiful land, a bountiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the beginning of the deliverance of that promise. It didn't happen through Moses. It will happen through Joshua. God's setting Joshua up to be the guy to get it done. Um, we don't know how Joshua met God. We don't know when Joshua started following God. Uh, we don't know when Joshua began a friendship with Moses. We don't know how they were introduced. We don't know what drew Moses to Joshua or Joshua to Moses. He just shows up. I have a note that said Moses' servant. This is his son. Joshua. And that's how they had a relationship. Maybe. Son of none, Moses' aide. Yeah. That's what mine says. Yeah. Yeah. That, that means he was an orphan, son of none. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. N U N. Well, it'll tell us earlier on that he that they were with that Joshua was with Moses from his youth. So we know it happened early. But we don't know the context around it. We don't know the situation. I mean, why this kid more than any other kid? We don't know. He just shows up. Uh, we do know that he was prepared for military leadership. And he was prepared for spiritual leadership. Not through schooling or through education, but by mentoring. We know that he was with Moses early on. We know that... Um, that, that uh, he had a relationship with some key people, Moses, the primary one. Uh, and one of the things that we can glean from Joshua right up front before we ever get to the book of Joshua is that relationships are important. There's an old guy named Charles Tremendous Jones 
who said the difference between who you are now and who you'll be five years from now come from two things, the books you read and the people you most closely associate with. That's good. Those two things he said, now this is back before social media and, and smartphones, but he said those two influences are going to be the biggest, make the biggest impact between who you are now and who you're going to become. Um, and it really does um, play out to be true. I think if it were, if he were to say in this culture, he would say that the difference between who you are now and who you will be will come in two things. The media you put in your head and the people you know most closely associate with. The people we most closely associate with, that's a constant. That, that's always going to be the determining factor. Now it would be the media we put before our eyes. Uh, and the people we most closely associate with. So obviously, Joshua associated with very high-quality, high-character people. He chose well. And what he put in his head was the law of God. All of the, this whole idea is backed up in 1 Corinthians 15.33. And 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, um, bad company corrupts good character. I mean, that's... Do not be misled. Verse 33. Bad company corrupts good character. And verse 34, the first words are, come back to your senses. <laughs> Don't be dumb. Uh, I know for Shelly and I, we chose our kids' friends. And we were very strategic about that. Um, and we made sure that the people we associated with, thereby the people our kids associated with, were people who were following Jesus, who were staying married, who were working and productive. Uh, and that's just who our kids ended up being around because we were around their, their parents when they were little, little, little. And so there was just this natural friendship that had to develop with these kids because it was, it was, because I knew, I knew my kids were good character. I didn't want them around that company. And so, um, <clears throat> I'm just going to leave that there. I mean, that's, it's, just, it's just, it's really important. And that's one of the things we see in Joshua. We first hear of Joshua and him being prepared for military leadership in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 13. So if you, do, if you go to Exodus, uh, and you go to Exodus 17, uh, Moses has led the people out of Egypt, and they are... Um, they're, they're in the wilderness. He had just got water from a rock. Uh, and in verse 8 of Exodus 17, the Bible says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, so Moses is a leader. Joshua has risen in leadership and authority. Uh, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight uh, the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses was set up to be the military leader. And so he's going to lead the army. Um, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired... They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his uh, held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So, from early on, now Joshua at this point, 
Josh was, you know, he's in his late 30s, early 40s. I mean, he's, a, he's this young stud of a military commander leading the, uh, the army in this miraculous defeat of the Amalekites. And so he gets to see firsthand God's uh, miraculous intervention in military conquest going into the promised land. This is part of his early uh, spiritual formation. But he was also prepared for spiritual leadership because just in a couple chapters later, Exodus 24, verses 12, 13, and 14, God is preparing Ab- uh, Moses to go up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And as Moses is prepared to go up to the Ten Commandments, uh, verse 12 of Exodus 24 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. So he said, Moses, I want you to come up with me. Moses takes it upon himself, verse 13. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you. And anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Moses is called by God to go up on the Mount, on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He doesn't take Aaron, who's the priest, the, the first high priest. He doesn't take her, the guys who are with him in battle, holding up his hands. Who does he take? He takes Joshua. Because there's something about this man that Moses says, um, you seem to have a different spirit in you. And I'm going to give you this experience that I have as well. And so Joshua was prepared for military leadership at the Battle of the Amalekites. He was prepared for a spiritual leadership up on the mountain of Sinai with Moses. Joshua was able to see the miraculous intervention of God in the, on, on the battlefront with the Amalekites. And he was able to see God's mighty presence on Sinai. Those two things were the things that he would have to rely upon as he led the people into the promised land. God's miraculous intervention in the physical world and his awesome presence. Why? Because God just told him in Joshua 1 that we read, be strong and courageous. And he'll tell him in verse 8 and 9, I'm with you always. I'm, I'm with you. Don't, don't get scared. You saw what I can do. You know my presence. Understand this. Let's think about this today. Whenever we get a revelation or experience of God in our life, part of that's intent is to give us faith for the future. God never gives us a glimpse or an action of himself that's supposed to be held in a vacuum. As if that was a neat experience, wonder when I'll get one of those again. It's intended to give us faith for the future. Joshua had the experience of God on the battlefield. Why? Because he would need to know that faith going into the battles of the promised land, that God can get this done. You want me to what? Walk around a city seven times without doing a thing and you're going to deliver that? That makes no sense. Oh, wait a minute. I saw what you did with the Amalekites, right? Wait, wait. I have to lead this grumbling people into this land of hostility? I can't do this. Oh, wait, wait. I forgot. You are with me because I saw your presence on Sinai. So every time we get that glimpse of God and we get to see this experience of him, 
Every time we see God's hand, every time we see God's provision, every time we see God's power, every time we see God's move, that should, two things, one, give us faith for what's coming in the future because something's coming. And two, we make us realize that God is positioning us for more in the future. And I just wonder, why is it every other, every time we run up to a new experience of the Amalekites that we freak out as if God is going to show up again? All of this stuff is meant to build on each other. And before David ever fought the giant, he fought the what? The, bears. the, bears and lions. the lions and the bears. It was building to something. The, there, there's one negative thing said of Joshua in all the Bible. Did you ever? Did you ever so there's one negative thing. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And this is before Joshua takes over leadership. It's before the spies that spy out the land. The only negative thing about Joshua in the entire Bible, Numbers 11, verses 16 and 17. Let's start there. The Lord said to Moses, now, here's what's happening. The people had had manna provided by God, miraculously. All their needs are met. But are they satisfied with um, sourdough bread? No. They want some meat, right? Like every good red-blooded American I need to have a couple barbecues during a week. Keep me satisfied. So they complain. And God says, fine. I'm, I'm going to give you all some quail. So this is setting that whole thing up. Verse, um, uh, verse, uh, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. So God says, look, I'm going to help you out, Moses. These people are getting a little unruly. Give me 70 leaders, spiritual leaders. I'm going to take the spirit I put on you, and I'm going to put it on them as well so they can help you. So God tells them to do that. So Moses, being obedient, does that. Verses 24 and 25. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. He took, uh, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on these elders, on them, they prophesied. Um, and one translation says, the, uh, but they did not do so. Again, another translation um, translates that. They continued to do so. So the point is, God gets these 70 elders. They're all made at the tent of meeting. God takes the spirit of, that was on uh, Moses and puts on 70 elders. And they start prophesying and speaking on God's behalf. So that's, that's the scenario. Now, watch what happened. Verse 26 and 27. However... Two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. Moses said, God said, get them to come to the tent meeting. Moses called them to the tent meeting. These two guys didn't go. They remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran to Moses 
uh, and told, uh, ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So they were supposed to go out to the tent where everybody else went and where God blessed them with the spirit and prophesied. They chose to stay in the camp, but they still had the spirit poured out on them and started prophesying in the camp. What's the problem with that? Okay, uh, did they have permission to stay behind? Well, we don't know if they did. We don't know. They could have had permission to stay behind, or they could have been disobedient and staying behind. The point is, they weren't with the group, right? Now put yourself in Joshua's position. Like, I've been with Moses from a young man. I'm part of this circle. I was with them on Sinai. I was with them in the battlefield. God chose to include these other people. They jumped on board and received the blessing of the Spirit of God on them. You two couldn't bother yourselves to go to the tent and you think you have the right to do what we're doing? Do you see? And so, verse 28. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Don't let them do that. Why? Joshua, what's your problem? He started grumbling and complaining. I don't like what they're doing. I don't think that's right. I don't think they have the right or the authority or the position, Right? God, I would do it different. So Moses, stop him. Moses, in verse 29, but Moses replied, <laughs> Are you jealous for my sake? You think you got to stick up for me? Whose fight are you fighting? Moses said, I wish that all the Lord's people are prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. So what's your problem? Let God do what God's going to do. If you think someone's got to be in the right position for God to bless, who are you? And Moses' words would come true at Pentecost. When the Spirit fell on all the people and they spoke the gospel and prophesied all in their tongue. This seems to be the only negative thing about Joshua. And this seems to be the only thing Joshua ever complained about. And for the next 40 years of wandering around the desert, Joshua nor Caleb ever complained about a thing. Ever. Never grumbled, never murmured, never complained, never posted about how they think things ought to be run and what should happen. Nothing. They never grumbled, they never moaned, they didn't murmur. they would never have been on social media because that's oftentimes what happens. They just weren't the kind that would complain. And I love the fact that Joshua learned his lesson the first time um, and no negative words ever came out of his mouth. It's amazing. I was reading in my commentaries and one of them said, That when you hear a person 
who has been, who is in the successful service of God, you won't hear them grumbling, complaining, or whining. They're people of good courage and God blesses them. You want to take God's hand off your life and take the spirit of God off your life, just start complaining, grumbling, and murmuring. Right? If you're not a complainer, grumbler, or murmurer now, the best way to become one is to be around people who murmur, complain, and grumble. Why? Because bad character or bad company corrupts good character. That's one of the reasons I got off social media a long time ago. And that's one of the reasons I have, uh, I'm particular about who I <laughs> spend most of my time with because <laughs> there's some nice people out there, but boy, they're just a bunch of freaking complainers and it just rubs off. It just rubs off. And I know I've said this a bunch in the past, but I tell you, it rubbed off on a lot of people in 2020 and 2021. So, so all of that, that's the kind of the setup. And then we see this other, this other great portion of Joshua's life before we ever get to the book of Joshua. And it's in Numbers 13 and 14. And in Numbers 13 and 14, so Joshua learns not to complain. He learns not to grumble. He learns not to murmur. Now watch this. Numbers 13 verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land. of I'm excited about this. I'm excited about what's happening right now. Because this is, I'm going to show you something that I don't think you probably, it's probably never, never dawned on you. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. This is the telling of the story. Who told Moses to send these 12 spies out? The Lord, the Lord said to Moses, what did the Lord tell Moses to send these 12 spies out to do? Explore. Now, please understand, I've said a word and none of you have um, um, called me on it. I said that the Lord told Moses to send 12 spies. Where did the Lord say to send spies? In my Bible. Of course, but I didn't want to give it away. <laughs> Choose 12 men to explore. Now, were, um, who were the, the, the explorers that came west and. Um, Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Do we talk about them as spies or explorers? <laughs> explorers, why? They explored. They're finding out how great stuff was. Now watch this. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, the very next book. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 22. The book of Deuteronomy is the retelling of the history that's already been told. So Moses is retelling the history that's already happened. Okay? This is what Moses says, verse 22. Then all y'all came and said to me, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we will come to. Yeah, it did seem good to me. So I did. 
When Moses retells it, how does he retell it? Whose idea was it? People. The people's idea. And what was the people's idea? Spies. To send spies. Was that God's plan? No. Because the people are sitting there going, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. We don't know what kind of land we're walking into. We don't know if there's a bunch of ruffians there or not. We don't know if it's worth inhabiting. So let's spy it out and make sure that this is what we want to do. Let's make sure we got the resources in place. Let's make sure we got the people in place. Let's make sure we got all the strategery we need. God said, I'm giving you a land flowing of milk and honey. Now go explore it. Maybe Moses shouldn't have sent the spies. Maybe he should have sent explorers. All the spies did, but two, is come back grumbling and complaining. Maybe the instructions Moses gave should have been a little bit more clear. Listen, don't worry about what you're going to find here. It's all good. God already told us. Don't go looking for the problems. Don't be dumb, but please. We're going to face some big bad people. Just count on it. But we already saw what God did with the Amalekites. We already saw him provide for us. Well, we know his presence with us. So don't worry about it. Just go explore it. Like, just go see how good it is. I, I don't know what was communicated. Well, from Deuteronomy, it looks like Moses said, let's go spy out and find out how we got to get this done. The interesting thing is that though they came back and grumbled and complained, it did allow Caleb and Joshua to rise in leadership. That's one of the good things that came out of their grumbling and complaining. What I know is this. Where there's problems, there are always opportunities for heroes. Whenever there's a problem, there's an opportunity for a hero. It will not be the ones who are grumbling and complaining. Well, just, I just, as I read this, I go, come on, Carl, don't be like, look, look at verse 18, 19, and 20 of uh, Numbers 13. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I know where I'm going, Johnny. You just need to, Numbers 13, this is back with sending out the spies. Verses 18, 19, 20. Um... Actually, start in verse, in verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said to them, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. This is a look at what he said. See what the land is like. Whether the people who live there are strong or weak, many or few. What does it matter? If there's a few people there, does that mean that you don't really need God? <laughs> If there's a lot of people there, does that mean that God's going to have a problem with it? If the people are weak, does that mean, uh, you don't worry about God, we got this one? If the people are strong, does that mean like God's like, oh, shoot, okay, let's, what's it matter? He said, go look at it. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What do you think it is? This is the promised land. This is God's deliverance of his word to you. A land flowing of milk and honey. If it's a land flowing of milk and honey, is it bad land? No. 
And God can make streams out of desert. So who cares if it's bad? It's going to get good real quick. What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? What does it matter? Like all we got to do is stay in step with God. How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Do you ever have a conversation with someone and they just keep asking questions? You know, like, just stop asking questions. <laughs> Enough. It doesn't. Like, <laughs> Are there trees on it or not? Oh, my gosh. What? You want to see if there's peacocks and squirrels, too? Like, who cares? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of land, in parentheses, it was seasoned uh, for the first right. But, like, what? What do they think God's going to give them? And what do they think God's incompetence is if what they discover is less than what they expect? How incompetent do they think God is? I mean, what, what was their expectation of the Father? To give them a bad land? To give them scarcity? To give them no resources? To give them failure? I look at them and I think, Carl, what is, what's your expectation? What do you think God's going to do for you? I mean, what do you think God's going to give us? Well, I'm not sure. I don't. Can I really trust him? This is a pretty big issue. What do you think? Right? <laughs> I'm glad the Bible's about other people and not us. <laughs> Verse 26, 27, 28, 29. They came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They then there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. Well, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does indeed flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. Seas are fortified. They're very large. We even saw there's sitting some Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites. Uh, I'm sure the termites and the cellulites all live in the hill country. Uh, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So they bring this report. It's not a negative report. It's not a bad report. It's just a report. It's just the facts. Yep. Good land. Yep. Milk and honey. Yep. Fortified cities. Yep. Bunch of people. It's just the facts. No big deal. And so in kind, Caleb, again, Caleb and Joshua now are, are thick as thieves, right? Like they're they're tight with each other. Good company helps produce good character. Okay, so the people who you'll the person who you'll be is going to be in part determined by who you most closely associate with. And Joshua and Caleb were connected. So Caleb signs the people, and Mo said, "Yeah, we should go take possession of land. We can do it." <coughs> it it's it's not an emotional charge. It's not a oh come on, what are you guys saying? They gave the facts, and Caleb gave the facts. Yeah, we should go do it. I don't see a problem. It just, okay, no problem. When he had a chance to grumble and complain, when Joshua and Caleb had a chance to grumble and complain, they chose faith and courage. They could have said, yeah, it is pretty well fortified and we got to make sure our ducks in a row. I don't know, man. They had a chance to grumble and complain, and Joshua and Caleb at least chose faith and courage. Joshua had seen God's hand on the battlefield with the Amalekites. He had seen God's presence on the Mount of Sinai. Caleb was the closest ally with Joshua, and faith, that type of faith is always contagious. Always. 
<coughs> and he says, yeah, I think we should go do it. We can certainly do it. I don't even know why we're talking about it. Let's just go get it done, right? We don't have to have these committed meetings and prayer circles and discern the will of God and put the fleece out like Gideon did and pray for a sign and all this stuff. It's like God says he's going to give it to us. Here we are. Let's just go do it. Sometimes I think we miss the move of God because we spend time praying about it too much. I'm not saying don't pray, but I'm saying when you... When you get the word and get the direction, just go. He's always given the green light. Like, if you know it's God's will, just go. Just do it. But, verse 31, 32 and 33, the men who had gone up with him said, Hold on now. They had just given the facts. Caleb with Joshua. Yeah, we should go do it. Then they're like, oh, hey, hold on. When the men of God with them, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. You, you notice how, how focus changes because of fear? When we become afraid, it becomes all about us. If we live as people of faith, it remains all about God. They get scared and they look at themselves. We can attack him. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. This is the stupidest statement they could make. Just think about what they said. The land we explored devours whom? The people living in it. Let's you put our logic in, into work here. If the land devours the people living in it, there can't be anybody living in the land that the land is devoured. The fact that there's people living in that land proves their statement to be false. Because if it devours the people living in it, there'd be no people living in it. You see what I'm saying? So fear always makes us sound like idiots. It, it, that's just what it does. It just makes us say things that if we think about it, it's not, that's not the way. It doesn't devour the people living in it because there's people living in it. But, but they're responding from this, this spirit of fear and timidity. All the people we saw there are of great size. But you know what? You know how to create a generation of giant killers? Kill a first giant. Oh, that's all you got to do. Kill the first giant, and all of a sudden you got a you got a generation of giant killers. If you read you read through the history after David, David killed Goliath, and then David's mighty men killed one giant after another after another. Why? Because the first guy did it. Just like the four minute mile, right? Scientifically, humanly impossible. Until when? To Roger Bannister, right? First four-minute mile. And then immediately, it just started falling like fly. Everybody's running a four-minute mile. I mean, high school girls are running a four-minute mile. Well, the good ones, I mean, it's just it's like, it's like, who cares? No big deal. Like, all you got to do to create a, a generation of giant killers is someone's got to kill the first giant. What do you mean they're bigger than us? Who cares? 
We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Oh, now you're speaking for them now. Do you see what fear does? It, 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 it destroys vision. It makes cowards out of Christians. And it colors everything we see and everything we feel. Not just about ourselves, but about the world around us. And so fear began to rule the day. Uh, You all know this. The opposite of faith is what? Not doubt. Yeah, it's fear. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Fear will paralyze God's people. Did you know this? That fear is a spirit that must not be allowed to reign in our hearts. Paul told Timothy, you've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So keep your head. Don't let the spirit of fear, fear is much more than an emotion. It's a spirit sent by the evil one to cause us to sacrifice our faith. Don't let the spirit of fear Rule in your hearts because you've been given a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So Joshua 14 now, verses 6, 789. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had explored the land. They tore their clothes. They said to the entire assembly, the land we passed through is, and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. It's like, look, just let's remind ourselves of what we're talking about here. This is the thing God promised us. He said he would give it to us. It is exceedingly good. It is flowing with milk. This is God's blessing that he's, he's on, the, on the verge of pouring out on us. Do only do not rebel against the Lord. What in this scenario, what is rebellion for them against the Lord? Yeah, because of what? Fear. fear. When we live in fear, it's rebellion against God. Be strong, courageous, don't be dismayed, neither be discouraged, for I'm with you wherever you go. So when we live in fear, it's rebellion against God. Think about that for a minute. When we live in fear over the future of our children, (laughs) we're living in rebellion to God. We live in fear about health. It's rebellion against God. Might not go like we want. I get it. But to move in faith into something that doesn't go like we want is what it means to follow Christ. If the Lord pleases us, he'll give us a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, give to do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid. See, that's rebellion. Do not be afraid of the people in that land because we will swallow them up. What what did the other ten spies ten spies say happens to the people who are in that land? They get what? Swallowed up, right? He said, No, 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 no. It's not going to swallow us up. 
we're going to swallow them up, right? Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. <coughs> and again, Caleb and Joshua are positioned for leadership because of their faith. It was their faith that gave them courage, and it was their faith that dispelled their fear. And they moved in faith. There's another translation that says, don't be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. There's another translation that talks about them. They are bread for our souls. Now, think about that for a minute. The giants in the land, big, they're bread for us. We're going to feast on them. Now, think about this. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily If the giants in the land, the danger in the land is bread for our souls, and Jesus says, pray that God gives you your daily bread, there is a correlation perhaps that we could say that Jesus says, look, here's the thing. You pray daily for difficulty and challenge because when you face giants, you are on your knees. When you face giants in your land, you're never closer to me as when you're looking at a giant that you think can take you out. Right? Mm -hmm. So God today give me this day my daily bread that will keep me on my knees begging for your presence, your protection, or your provision. Do you see what I'm saying? And Joshua's like, okay, like, this is awesome. I cannot wait to go get these giants because they keep us connected to God. Later, we'll find out, Caleb, 85 years old. They're portioning out the land. And Caleb will say, look, there's still some giants up in the hill country. Joshua says, I know, Caleb, but you're 85. Like, Go to Santa Barbara. <laughs> Go to Malibu. You can have any land you want. Kick your heel. You've served so well and so long. Relax. And Caleb says, it's been 45, 40 years since that day. There's still giants in the hills. Give me the hill country. I'm as strong now at 85 as when I was 40. Why? Because giants are bread for my soul. Little different way to think about difficulties and challenges in life, right? See, what ama I talked about this a couple weeks ago on our birthday for our church. What amazes Jesus is belief in his authority and acting in accordance with the belief in his authority. Now, what amazes Jesus is when those who should believe in his authority and should act in accord with it and don't. And Jesus is like, what the? I mean, he says it in a real God type of way, but like what? I, I've just moved and I've done all this. Was that all a waste? 
How many times have I proved myself over and over and over and you sit back there and live in fear and rebellion as if you don't believe I have the authority and you have a right to my authority? Why would I ever do something again for you? Oh, I know, because I love you and I'm full of grace. Okay, so I'll do something again. I just... See, to not act in accordance with the authority that we say Jesus has is to treat him with contempt. Let me say that again because I think we need to understand it. To not act in accordance with the authority that we say Jesus has is to treat him with contempt. Watch this. I'll close with this. Numbers 14, 20 through 23. The Lord replied, Okay, I've forgiven them. Like you wanted me to. I don't know how many times God has said that about me. You know, okay, Carl. Nevertheless, as sure as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed in me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on to their forefathers. No one... Who has what? Treated me with contempt. contempt. We'll ever see it. What was it that that was contemptuous? Fear and unbelief. Matter of fact, you can cross-reference that with Hebrews 3.19. And Hebrews 3.19... So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief, because of fear, is to treat God with contempt. God goes on. But because of my servant Caleb, and again, Caleb and Joshua are together. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Because of a different spirit. Caleb and Joshua saw everything everybody else saw. But they had a different spirit about what they saw. Caleb and Joshua had the same experience that everybody else experienced. But they had a different spirit about what they experienced. And their spirit and the and this about what they saw and what they experienced was a spirit of faith that created men of courage that God used to deliver the promise to his people. And everybody else who complained, everybody else who grumbled, everybody else who murmured, and everybody else who lived responded in fear, though God was good, and though he was the God of abundant blessing. They remove themselves from God's goodness and abundant blessing. So that all sets up what we're going to read about in Joshua now as he takes the mantle of leadership. So God has positioned him. Remember what I said. All these experiences that God gives us is a setup for what he's leading us into in the future. And all of this is the seedbed that created this man, Joshua, 
to be the leader of God's people, to lead them into the promise that God promised them way back in Genesis 12 under Abraham. And that's all that we'll get into in Joshua 1. Good? Yeah. Comments, cries, shouts of outrage? So they buried a million people in the wilderness? Yeah. It's a lot of dead bodies. <laughs> I always wondered about that. They said they slew 400,000 people. What happened to them? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's the oil we live off of today. I don't know. No. Boy, that was the dinosaurs. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, that's on tape. Doggone it. Whatever. It's flip side. I don't care.